Good evening. Our main story this evening is the dreadful, disastrous news delivered by the Bank of England yesterday. The oncoming recession, which they have forecast, is going to dwarf all other stories, essentially, when it comes to, to British politics over the next year, potentially over the next two years. We are also, though, going to find time for some other stories. Rishi Sunak made a dreadful statement on the campaign, really showing us the true meaning of conservatism. And we're closing the show with a clip about Alex Jones, which you won't want to miss. Um, a very entertaining story there, although, you know, with a pretty dark context. The Bank of England has forecast the UK faces 15 months of recession, matching the length of the downturn which followed the 2008 global financial crisis. They say the economy will shrink by 2.1%, mirroring the recession of the early 90s. And most pernicious of all, they project real incomes to fall continuously for a full two years. It would be the most drawn-out contraction since records began. It's in these circumstances that one might expect a central bank to cut interest rates so as to boost demand. But instead, the bank raised rates by the single biggest jump since the 1990s. Interest rates have gone from 1.25% to 1.75%. The bank says the increase is necessary to get a handle on inflation which, thanks to increases in fuel prices, they project could increase to 13.3% this year. In an interview with Sky, the bank's governor explained how they came to their rate-raising decision. If we don't get you know, inflation under control, if we don't bring it down from where I'm afraid it's got to go up to because of, uh, say, of this huge energy shock that we're having, if we don't bring it down, then the, then the damage and the distress will be even greater. The main pressure is external. Gas prices, everyone understands that. Is it really the case that you need to tighten the screw at home? Is that a judgment? Are you sure about that judgment call? You're right that the main pressure is external. And that's going to feed through into inflation, I'm afraid, over this winter. We do think it's going to come down, you know, going through next year and beyond. But we have got another thing going on, which is domestic. The size of the labour force has shrunk. There are fewer people um, you know, working in the economy. And that's affecting, uh, you know, when I go around the country, I spend a lot of time going around the country, the first thing that every firm wants to talk to me about is, I can't hire enough people. And, and you know, we've got this situation where we're saying, well, I think you know, we can already see the economy slowing. It's going to get worse, I'm afraid. And yet firms are saying two things to me. One is they're still able to increase prices and they're not getting resistance and they just can't hire enough people. And of course that does have an upward effect on, uh, uh, on costs. So in short, inflation might be driven by increases in energy prices, but if we don't take power away from workers and take the money out of the hands of consumers, it will only get worse. It sounds a bit like class war dressed up in the language of technocracy. But unsavory or not, are rate rises necessary to get a handle on inflation? I asked economist James Meadway. Uh, no, absolutely not. It won't make any real difference to the rate of inflation over the end of this year and into next or even beyond that. I mean, Andrew Bailey almost says as much in that clip, which is that there are these huge external factors that are impacting on Britain and the rest of the world, the war in Ukraine, the after effects of COVID increasingly uh, extreme weather events, uh, drought affecting grain harvests, all this sort of thing. That's having the impact on prices of everything, or at least certainly there's some really important raw materials, uh, things like oil and gas and, and some basic foods here in Britain and right the way across the world. You change the interest rate here, it doesn't stop Russia invading Ukraine. It doesn't change how much gas in Qatar costs. It doesn't do any of these things. It's useless. So no, that doesn't make uh, any impact on the prices here. The thing that you could do that Andrew Bailey and others in the mainstream of economics will never talk about is that you can squeeze profits. Because what's happened over the last year is that prices have gone up, wages haven't gone up as much. So of course, profits have, have really exploded. And right at the top of some of the biggest companies in the country BP and Shell are the most obvious ones. You saw BP's profits earlier this week. Profits have gone through the roof. Now, you could take some of those profits and either hand them out as wage increases or force BP and Shell and some of the other providers of these essential goods to not raise their prices. And that would mean their profits coming down, but everybody else would be better off. 
That kind of stuff is never talked about by Andrew Bailey or by the kind of economics mainstream. The, the problem of profits in the middle of all this inflation isn't being discussed anything, anywhere near enough. And it's the key to what's happening right now. If we want to deal with inflation, you have to attack those profits. You have to make the profits being made by large companies much smaller, make people's wages much higher, or bring down the prices of the things they need to buy. And you think that would be enough if, if you tax profits a bit more or brought down profits? I mean, I, I think the argument he's saying is, look, energy prices are global. We can't have total sort of control over those. And if we allow a wage price spiral or whatever to come to pass, then the inflation could last longer than any increase in gas prices. The, the assumption being that gas prices will at some point fall and they want to try everything possible so that that inflation doesn't become permanent. You, you, you reject that argument outright. It's completely nonsensical, right? Let's just be really clear about this. And people should be quite angry about this. We're being told there will be a wage price spiral because wages are going up so much, it's pushing prices up. Now, at the minute, prices are rising just over 9% on average in Britain. Wages are going up about 4%. So it's not wages pushing up prices. Wages are trading prices. The Bank of England's own forecasts for next year show that wages will be falling in real terms by more than 7%. It's the worst decline in wages really since the Industrial Revolution. Right? That's what's going to happen next year. This is not a wage price spiral because wages in real terms are falling. Wages aren't going up so much that prices have to go up to try and keep up with them. Actually, what you're looking at is something like a profits price spiral. Profits have gone through the roof and prices are going up as a reflection of that. So if you want to do something about inflation, we're going to have to talk about profits. And Andrew Bailey won't do that. The government won't do that. To their shame, the Labour Party won't do that properly. Occasionally you hear about windfall tax, but it's nothing really. That's where we need to get to on this. And that means that if you're going to strike to ask for more pay, you're doing the right thing. If you're saying that you think the energy price hike in autumn is going to be far too much for you to afford and you don't want to pay, you're doing the right thing. You're doing something about the cost of living crisis in a way that Andrew Bailey just isn't. Let's talk about the interest rate rise specifically. Now, people are saying this is going to push the country into recession, moving from 1.25% to 1.75%. What's interesting here, though, is that's still very, very low by historical perspective. Interest rates since the 1990s, so in the 90s, they hopped at around 6%. For most of the noughties, they were at around 4%. So why is 1.75%, which is still historically low and way, way below inflation at 13% or 10% or whatever it is right now. Why is that something that could tip the country into recession? The issue with this move in interest rates is that it's a big move relative to what interest rates have been for the last few years. That because the economy got so battered in 2008, we had the Bank of England, like other central banks, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, pushing interest rates really, really low after the crisis in 2008. And then because the economy is weak, They've not, until now, felt like they can lift interest rates. They want to keep them low because they're trying to keep even a little bit of economic activity going. This is worsened by austerity in Britain. Because they did austerity, the Bank of England had to keep interest rates very low as well. So as a result, a lot of debt has built up. And there's quite a lot of sensitivity now to that debt. So changes in interest rates are likely to have quite a big impact, even though the actual rate is really quite low. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the international picture which is that because, in particular, the Federal Reserve in the US is putting up its interest rates, Britain gets pulled along behind it because otherwise what you find is the value of the pound falls because people think if you're looking to chuck your money around the world as people, as these big financial institutions and very wealthy people do, you'll think that you get a better return in the US if you pull money out of Britain. So there's this international impact as well. And for as long as the Federal Reserve is saying it's going to put up interest rates, the Bank of England is likely to tag along. I mean, that's the the hierarchy at work in, in the economy here. Now, none of this really turns into having much impact on what's actually going to happen to inflation. What's going to happen to inflation is going to be determined by the war in Ukraine, by whether or not uh, food harvests next year are, are dramatically affected by drought and uh, supply difficulties, as they have been this year, by whether or not China continues locking down because of COVID. Just very little to do with interest rates in any sense here. And that's where you have to get back to, to the sort of the raw problem of what's going on, that you have the Bank of England trying to pull on this lever, partly because it's looking at what everybody else in the rest of the world is doing. And the effect of that lever is potentially to push us into a recession without actually infect affecting inflation very much. So we end up with rising unemployment and still high inflation 
and falling real wages. This is the worst possible combination. And although Andrew Bailey won't quite say this openly, if, because he still seems to think this, if he thinks there's a risk of a wage price spiral, you want to keep wages down. If you want to keep wages down, it helps if you push up unemployment, because then people get too frightened of unemployment to go on strike and ask more wages. And it's as simple and as crude as that. So they don't have many levers that can do very much. If you're the Bank of England, you've basically got the interest rate lever, maybe quantitative easing, but really it's just the interest rate lever. They're pulling on this, knowing it'll induce a recession, and the mechanism that they pretty explicitly want to kick in is that unemployment rises. This frightens people from making wage demands, and therefore you have some impact at some point on, on inflation. Now, I don't think any of this is going to work, and the consequences of most people are actually pretty severe. This is a dramatic decline in people's living standards that if you're not in a union, you should join one. If you're not taking part in other kinds of action and processes and things, you should, because it's very clear that this Bank of England both can't and won't do anything to help any of us in this situation. I want to go to another argument from Andrew Bailey about precisely the question of industrial action and people fighting for, for higher wages or wages which are to some degree, in line with inflation. So this is a conversation he had this morning with Justin Webb on Radio 4. What is, in the current context of inflation, an inflationary pay rise? We had Mick Lynch on the programme the other day uh, from the RMT. I talked to him. He said, our members haven't had a rise for three years. It's perfectly legitimate to ask what we're asking for. We're not even getting more money than inflation. We're actually getting, we're still taking a cut, is is the point he makes. And lots of other union leaders, lots of other people in all sorts of jobs around the country. What is an inflationary pay rise? Well, let me put it, there isn't a number, but let me put put it in terms of the, the sort of the concept, if you like. If everybody tries to beat inflation, and, and that's in both price setting and wage setting. Yeah, but what about matching it? Never mind beating it. What about well, matching it? Why, why is that inflationary? Well, it never comes down. That's, the, that's the, you know, the issue in many ways. If everybody tries to beat it, it doesn't come down, it gets worse. That's the problem. There's a second problem, and, and this is very important. I've said this a number of times. I put this in terms of high pay rises and high price increases. Because in that world, it's the people who are least well off who are worst affected because they don't have the bargaining power. So that was Andrew Bailey, who I think is on about half a a million pounds a year, essentially suggesting that people who are striking in industries where they have high bargaining power. So, for example, if you are a train driver, you do have quite a lot of of bargaining power. If you withdraw your labor, that's going to make a a big impact on the economy, more so um, potentially than someone who works in in a supermarket, for example, or, or a hairdresser. Is there anything to that argument, James? They're saying if we leave it all to unions setting wages, then you'll get people with bargaining power getting wage increases and everyone else just having to suffer the the high prices caused by oil and gas increases. And Andrew Bailey there is saying also caused by people with bargaining power getting their wage increases almost in line with inflation. It's the same problem again. It's the missing term. It's, it's, the, it's the elephant in the room and all this. Look, profits for the largest companies in Britain are up 73% um, since the pandemic, right? It's just too. If you take price rises for the first six months of this year, 60% of that, if you look at the, the aggregate figures, is due to profits, just 8% due to wages. Profits, profits, profits. It is not an RMT worker who takes money of somebody who's working in Sainsbury's for their wages. That isn't how it works, right? If somebody's getting a pay rise, it's coming out of the surplus, either tax revenues or government borrowing, or for most people, company profits. Company profits are very, very high. So if you reduce those profits and you pay people higher wages, it does not follow that prices have to go up, right? That's just companies chasing their markup, chasing the fact they want to carry on making these high profits. So you squeeze them. That's what needs to happen here. That was James Meadway speaking to me earlier today. Let's move straight on. Keir Starmer doesn't want his front bench anywhere near a picket line. And when Shadow Transport Minister Sam Tarry defied that ban, the Labour leader promptly sacked him. But a recently circulated video shows Sir Keir was singing a very different tune in 2020 while running for Labour's leadership. The video was taken on the picket line of a UCU strike. It's really important you get politicians to come out and support you uh, and stand with you in this. So I'm very proud uh, to do that, to be with you this morning and to support you through this campaign, both as the local MP for here 
but also in the shadow cabinet uh, and as running as leader of the Labour Party, because my leadership, if I win it, will be standing with you and other campaigns like you so that we can win issues like this that are so important. Mate, my leadership will be standing with you and other campaigns like you. Now, I think that counts as being caught red-handed. I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. It's not a surprise that Keir Starmer has gone back against his words. I think when it comes to strike action, this is the most explicit it's been, though, right? He's, he's literally on a picket line saying, both as an MP and as a shadow cabinet member and as a candidate for leader of the Labour Party, I want to be here on a picket line and I will support campaigns like you when I'm leader. Yeah. And he also says, Michael, I think, I think it's in that same clip at another point, political involvement by leading MPs helps these kinds of actions win. If he still thinks that, then he actively is working against these strikes in the knowledge that they are more likely to lose because of his perceived neutrality. I understand middle-class liberals love this guy, partly because maybe there's a bit of projection, wish fulfillment. They, they see a bit of him in them. You know, this tends to happen. You know, 50, 60-year-old guys who are affluent, who've only known professional success with their big houses, they think, well, that's what politicians should look like. They should look and sound like me. That's human nature. I get it. But surely you can recognize somebody who's repeatedly lying to such an extraordinary extent. This is not normal. This is not normal. And I think really the only analog in terms of how easily he lies is Boris Johnson. But what's super different about them is that Boris Johnson lied in a very clumsy, oafish, almost, almost farcical way. Starmer does it in an incredibly calculated, devious, Machiavellian way. Very different. And I think that's more reason to, to criticize him if you're a liberal even, because this is the precise kind of optic, the precise kind of politician, which has switched working class voters off politics, or low income voters particularly, in the last 25 years. It's quite a recent phenomenon that lower income voters are less likely to vote than higher income votes. It's really since I think the late 1980s, early 1990s precisely because of figures and behavior like this. It's not good if you want progressive politics. You don't need to like Aaron Bastani on Avara Media. You don't need to be a, a diehard Corbynite. It's not in your rational self-interest to have politicians behaving like this because it makes you and your politics less credible to the electorate at large. That was an embarrassing video for the Labour Party. Let's move on to an embarrassing video for the other side. The Tories have always existed to transfer money from the poor to the rich but they don't normally say that out loud. This week, though, leadership candidate Rishi Sunak did just that. Managed to start changing the funding formulas to make sure that areas like this are getting the funding that they deserve. Because we inherited a bunch of formulas from the Labour Party that shoved all the funding into deprived urban areas. Uh, and they, you know, that needed to be undone. I started the work of undoing that. Now, when I first saw that clip, I thought perhaps maybe the emphasis was on urban not deprived. And so perhaps Sunak was saying we need to prioritise rural poverty as much as we do urban poverty. But given where he's speaking, that's just clearly not the case. He boasts that areas like this have got more under his watch. And he's speaking in Tunbridge Wells. Now, Tunbridge Wells, or Royal Tunbridge Wells, to give it its full name, is one of the wealthiest towns in Kent. And Kent is one of the wealthiest counties in the country. In one street, the average house price is £2.1 million, while overall, the average property price in Royal Tunbridge Wells is twice the national average. It has more high earners, fewer kids in child poverty, and far lower unemployment than the rest of the country. In short, you should not be funneling money from poor urban areas to Royal Tunbridge Wells. Rishi Sunak, though, is proud of it. Maybe he didn't know someone would be filming that, but he was proud enough about it to brag to the people of Royal Tunbridge Wells that he diverted money from poor urban areas, deprived urban areas, to their very rich town. Aaron, do you think Rishi Sunak would have said that if he knew that people from other parts of the country would see what he said? It's so strange, isn't it? You know, this guy who's lauded as this very slick, professional, media-savvy operator. Again, lots of projection. He's a bit of a goofball, actually, when it comes to quite basic things. Like, if you say something that's controversial, don't do it in a public event where people are putting up their camera phones towards you. Yeah, maybe you might say it at a donor's dinner on the sly, and so somebody can allege you said said it, but it's never really going to go anywhere. This isn't that. I mean, this is some this is something which he's saying at a meet and greet with party activists. 
But it is pork barrel politics. And this is something really important, Michael. Liberal market economics is not about neutrally administering the state. It is about serving certain class interests in the name of neutrally administering the state. This was an insight made by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, not a particularly new one. I mean, it's quite funny in 2022 that it's said by uh, Rishi Sunak so candidly and caught on a camera phone. It's a decent summary, though, of Tory politics, right? We, we, in, we came into power after 13 years of a Labour government. And you know, while we have many critiques of New Labour, one of the things they did do was quite successfully redistribute money from rich areas to poorer areas. And I mean, there is a critique that Labour sort of especially prioritised inner city areas and that poor parts of the country outside of the major cities, for example, you know, so inner city London schools are the ones which improved the most, better than sort of everywhere else. You can critique them on, on those grounds. But you can't critique them that, that they drained money from Royal Tunbridge Wells and put it into poor urban areas. That uh, If there is a point in the state, there's a point in the welfare state, it is precisely to prioritise those areas where people are most deprived. And Rishi Sunak saying, oh, there's some real problems with public policy when we came into government. They were doing this crazy thing, which was that they were diverting money to poorer parts of the country. Now, that didn't seem very fair. So what we've done is we've rechanneled all that money to our rich supporters. Of course, Royal Tunbridge Wells is a very, very, very safe seat. This kind of thing pays off. But they aren't supposed to say that because then they get found out. Do you think if, I mean, this would be a bigger story, I think, Aaron, if Rishi Sunak was expected to get the leadership. I mean, given that he's not, it's probably not going to have that many legs because I also doubt he's going to be on the front bench. But do you think if this was said by someone who was set to be the Tory leader, it would be the kind of thing that could get played at a general election? Or, or, or do you think that actually is, is kind of difficult to make this stuff land? No, totally. I think it's toxic. And I think you're right. If, he had, if there was any shot of him winning, I mean, maybe he will, right? We saw the Sky straw poll yesterday where he won amongst sort of floating Tory voters. I doubt the credibility of that person, given, given what YouGov is saying. Trust winning by a landslide at the moment. Could be wrong. But I think if, if it was Sunak winning by, say, two to one, yes, this would be a far bigger story. It was on the BBC website, which, you know, there's not many new statesman scoops which go on the BBC website within a couple of hours. So, yes, it got a couple of million views on social media, but it's not just limited to that. It's one of those stories which has percolated through to mainstream mainstream news because we've said it so many times, Michael. It was a bit like Allegra Stratton, right? There were whispers and there was, he said, she said about number 10 uh, breaking rules during the COVID lockdowns. The second you have somebody like Allegra Stratton being so viscerally hypocritical in a video, it was curtains for her professionally, but also it was the beginning of the end for the, for the Johnson administration, it turned out. This is similar. It's a digital object, 30 seconds, and it just condenses everything you already know, but actually it was just a suspicion. Here's confirmation. That's one point. I would also say, Michael, the whole thing of the Red Wall and what the Tories were projecting in 2019 and ultimately what got them an 80-seat majority was very different to this. It was very different. Now, if Rishi Sunak had been saying that in somewhere like Jaywick, which is a very poor part of the country, it is not part of the metropolitan elite. It's in Essex. It's not a million miles away from Kent. You know, it's the southeast of England. If he'd said that, said that in somewhere like Jaywick or, you know, somewhere which is uh, suffering rural deprivation in uh, rural Cornwall, again, these aren't really the kinds of places which, which generally vote Labour. If he'd said, look, far too much government investment and time and resources are going to big cities when it comes to infrastructure, public sector jobs, and those are the people right now who determine the public conversation in this country. And it's time we heard the little guy, which is what Farage basically made a, a living out of saying for, for the best part of 15 years. If he said that, then you say, well, it's not very good. It's not good to be saying that we want to take money away from these people who are subject to forms of dep deprivation and give it to these other people. But at least from a, a rhetorical point of view, you can say, well, I know how you win those people over. But I mean, surely you would feel like a complete scumbag, Michael, if you're a Tory voter. You're in this place in Kent, like you say, one of the most affluent parts of the country. You're probably on a hundred grand a year. You've seen your tax bill fall. You've seen your property sort of rocket in value in the last well, particularly since 2012, of course, before that as well, you've seen your, your state pension insulated. I wonder, even just Tory voters, all of that, they are getting so much when so many people are getting so little. And then you have a chancellor, one of the most powerful people in the country. So say, yeah, I'm really screwing, you know, kids in, in Blackburn or in Newham, where you're looking at 40, 50% rates of youth poverty. Kids are, are below, you know, in households below, the poverty line. I'm doing that so you can have more money. 
with your two Jaguars and your five-bedroom house and your three holidays a year. I mean, surely that would kind of get to your heart and you think, maybe I'm on the wrong side. But we go back to that debate we saw last night, Michael, where you had a conservative councillor literally with his teeth falling out, asking the conservative leadership candidates, what are they going to do about NHS dentistry, which is presently in freefall? He was so close to understanding the problem. So I do wonder, yes, it says a great deal about Rishi Sunak. It says also a great deal, Michael, about the people watching him, because apparently he was giving a standing ovation after all of this. You know, he, he was saying the things he said because it pleases the people that were there to hear them. I think that says a lot about the modern conservative party. It was a gaffe because other people saw it. But in terms of the speech he was giving to the people he was giving it to, it was a, it was a line they apparently loved. I mean, there, there isn't a video of anyone in the audience saying, actually, Rishi, don't you think maybe we shouldn't be taking money away from deprived people in inner cities to make relatively wealthy people wealthier? I, I imagine if someone had asked that question, we would also see a clip of that, but probably none of the Tory members there for that speech did so. I would hazard to guess. Do, do correct me if I'm wrong. Moving on. Liz Truss is almost guaranteed to be our next Prime Minister. And for a while, Labour supporters thought that would be a good thing. The idea was that Starmer would easily beat her in the next general election. But a new poll shows that it might not be the cakewalk Labour had hoped for. According to the poll from Redfield and Wilton, Starmer would comfortably beat Sunak, but if Truss wins, she would enjoy a two-point lead over Starmer. This is the second poll that puts Truss ahead of Sir Keir, and we can see why this has happened if we look at their popularity over time. So soon after Boris Johnson resigned, Starmer's popularity began to fall, while Truss's has been steadily increasing. The next big shift happened after Truss was selected as one of the final two candidates in the leadership race. From then on, the number of respondents answering don't know dropped by almost exactly the same amount as Truss's popularity began to rise. So it looks like Truss is impressing the once undecided, while Starmer just isn't. That shift also appears to be reflected in polls, which show voting intention. So in their latest survey, YouGov had the Tories just one point behind Labour. That's a big change from the previous week when Labour had a seven-point lead. Aaron, these polls obviously, you know, very far out from election. We probably shouldn't overinterpret them. The fact that Labour are just one point ahead of the Conservatives doesn't mean that at the time of a general election, Labour will just be one point ahead of the Conservatives. But I think probably what we can intuit from these is that potentially Labour, maybe I was doing the same, had underestimated Liz Truss. Is she potentially not as toxic as we once thought? If you were looking at a moderately healthy economic cycle, right, like in, enjoyed by Cameron and Osborne, Cameron Osborne can inflict austerity on the country because interest rates are low, inflation's low, you're still members of the European Union, so there's not that massive sort of geopolitical disruption there. But if inflation had been 10%, and you have to increase interest rates under Cameron Osborne. They can't do austerity like they did. They had this amazing Goldilocks set of circumstances, record low rates at which the state could borrow money. You know, people were trying to give money to sovereign nation states between, say, 2010 and, well, in this country till 2016. They were just trying to give you money and they built fuck all, which is just extraordinary. And by the way, people say Boris Johnson, the worst prime minister ever. Absolutely not. It is David Cameron for a bunch of reasons, including that one. If trust had that kind of broader economic context, I'd say, yeah, maybe. But I do think, Michael, it's kind of looking at the wrong thing when you've got, yeah, CPI, as we spoke about earlier, or you spoke about earlier with James Medway, CPI hitting 13%, RPI, which includes remortgaging costs, student loan costs, that's going to 17.9%, according to one source. The average person who made £30,000 last year, I think in real terms, is going to feel something like £1,800 worse off by the end of next year. So, oh, you know, Liz Truss is getting better. <laughs> She's performing better in the media, which I, I think that's true. And I think she'll probably get better. People generally get better at things the more they do them, unless you're Keir Starmer. I think that's true, but I think it sort of underestimates the scale of the problem. Now, if you have Liz Truss become the prime minister and there's an emergency budget in, the, in October or November and they do some extraordinarily big thing to mitigate people's energy bills, yeah, then yes, they may pull away in the polling. They could do. But I think purely on the basis of her personality and the fact she's slightly better at the media and at questions than we think, although she had some real horrors last night, I don't know. That said, I, I, I really would be very worried if I was Labour, the fact that you have a Tory party who just ditched a leader who was really vilified and 
hated and disdained by much of the, the country. I mean, he's still loved by the Tory base, but there's only 150, 200,000 of them. And these people all get to choose the next prime minister, very unrepresentative of the country. They literally don't have a leader in a cost of living crisis worse than anything, really. Like James Meadway said again, you know, a lot of the stuff we're now looking at is the worst it's ever going to be in the history of the Industrial Revolution the last 250 years. And the Tories are closing the gap. Now, if I was Keir Starmer, I would be worried about that. I would find that somewhat strange. I would. You know, people said, well, Corbyn was only five or six points ahead. It should be 20 points ahead. You would think Labour versus a Conservative Party with literally no leader, a set of economic circumstances worse than the stagflation of the 1970s. And now what we're being told, probably worse than 2008 in many ways. And yet the Tories are closing the gap. Two things. I think that could be subject to change. I think, of course, we're so used to social media, what's trending, and, oh, look, this person said this thing today, it's Rishi, Rishi Sunak. Of course, it matters. But that's not the temporality of politics. The temporality of politics is months and years. 2008 crisis happens. You go into 2009 with those five quarters of economic contraction, which we're about to see again, according to the Bank of England. And off the back of that, what do you have? The rise of the BNP in 2009, the rise of UKIP, the rise of the SNP, the rise of Corbynism, Farage, Brexit, Boris Johnson. That is all a response to events in 2008, 2009. So if we're trying to think of the political consequences in regard to the next 18 months, don't think about the next 18 months. Think about the next five to 10 years. Can Liz Truss win the next election? Plausibly. But I think what's going to make or break her is, is the response to really unprecedented economic conditions in the last 40, 50 years. Being affable in a TV interview is not going to cut it. And she's, she's in a difficult position because, I mean, I think probably she will come up with a big emergency budget and give people quite a lot of money, actually, to pay their energy bills. Because, I mean, the pressure to do that is going to be enormous. It seems like this movement to stop paying energy bills is, is growing. People are incredibly, incredibly angry. So I can imagine her doing you know, something similar to what Rishi Sunak did, but maybe bigger, because she doesn't really care about the debt, rightly, I think, actually. Obviously, I think all the tax cuts are a mistake. But, you know, it, it does seem like she could do a couple of popular things. But even if she does that, we're still going to have massively increasing unemployment. We're still going to have very, very high inflation, even if people are in a slightly better position to, to pay that. I also think a reason why, you know, I think Rishi Sunak gets really frustrated that people aren't giving him the credit that he's due when he said he'd give people £1,200. He's like, that's nearly covered all of your bills. And I think the reason it doesn't get the credit he wants it to get, I don't think it, it is due, by the way, is because people can't save all of that money to cover their bills because they've had to spend that on everything else. So he's like, this, this has almost completely covered the increase in energy bills. Yeah, but you already had to, we've already had to spend that money on the increase in food bills, the increase in rent, the increase in everything else. So we can't just put a ring around that money so that energy bills don't look so scary anymore because you've already spent that money elsewhere. I think whatever Liz Trust does, the same problem is going to apply. So you can say, oh, but I almost covered your, the increase in your energy bills. By the way, she hasn't done this yet. It's just, a, you know, if she does, it will say, well, we have to spend that money elsewhere. You know, the amount of money they're going to have to give out to cover all of these costs, if they don't do something drastic like rent controls or control the price of, of energy, then I don't think people are going to be grateful, rightly. I've never sat here and said, you should be grateful for the help you're getting from the Conservative Party. It's never going to be enough. And she has shown, I suppose, precisely all of the wrong inclinations in this leadership race because all she wants to do is cut taxes for the very wealthy. Doesn't make any sense at all. Up to a thousand Amazon workers at a warehouse facility have staged a wildcat strike. The workers in Tilbury, Essex, downed tools and occupied the cafeteria after managers offered them an insulting pay rise, one that amounts to a real terms pay cut. The Tilbury site is the second largest Amazon warehouse in the world. It's so big that workers sometimes have to walk half a mile to reach a toilet. So not only are the workers underpaid, the conditions sound pretty dreadful too. This leaked graphic from an internal newsletter shows that Amazon offered their lowest paid staff a raise of just 35p per hour. That's a measly 4% increase at a time when inflation is forecast to hit 13%. And for workers on intermediate pay, it's also terrible. Amazon offered them an extra 45p, which is barely a 3% increase in their pay. For context, the revenue of Amazon UK services, which employs most of the 55,000 Amazon workers in the UK, grew from roughly £3 billion in 2019 to £4.8 billion in 2020. That's a 64% increase. 
So this is not a company short of change. According to sources inside the warehouse, Amazon management threatened the workers with dismissal for protesting. Navara Media have spoken to Steve Gaelic. He's a GMB regional organizer. He said this, Amazon know they're doing wrong. They know they have upset people and rather than owning it and saying, let's sort this out, they're looking to try and kill what protest there is. And that's standard ignorant behavior as far as I'm concerned. They are trying to do everything they can to control this. If workers leave the premises, they're being told that they will be dismissed at the moment. And the strikes have spread to other Amazon centers too. Workers at a warehouse in Rugley, Staffordshire, also walked out over paltry pay offers. And Amazon centers in Bristol and Coventry staged their own wildcat strikes in solidarity with the Tilbury workers. What's interesting about these strikes is that they are pretty spontaneous actions by largely non-unionized workers. And they're largely non-unionized because Amazon is incredibly hostile to trade unions. In 2020, Amnesty International reported that Amazon had repeatedly tried to thwart GMB's unionizing activity. And they say in November 2018, July 2019, August 2019, and November 2019, Amazon solicitors sent legal notices regarding alleged trespass and threats of injunctions for unlawful trespass should they seek to enter the premises. So that's should union organizers attempt to enter the premises. The notices also illustrate that Amazon monitors the social media profiles of the union members as their screenshots are attached as evidence of planned demonstrations. On other occasions, GMB organizers told Amnesty International that staff from Amazon's human resources have confiscated and ripped up their pro-union leaflets handed out to workers once the worker was on site. Aaron, I mean, everyone's already calling this hot strike summer. There are lots of strikes going on. Lots of people aren't particularly happy to accept a real terms pay cut. Wildcat strikes, though, this is pretty new. I don't think we've seen this kind of thing in a while. People who aren't in a particularly well-organized workplace, this isn't you know, the railways, this isn't the RMT, you know, as I've just explained, partly because of the hostility of the Amazon employer, also because it's a different kind of industry. But yeah, I mean, it seems things could get pretty wild, you know, to pretty quickly. Well, they call it wildcat for a reason, Michael. There was also a food processing wildcat strike, I think, in Berry last month. Again, it's one of those industries where you think, okay, this isn't usual. You know, this is not like a walkout by automotive manufacturing workers or like you say, tube drivers or the public sector or whatever. You're not going to get a wild wildcat in the, in the public sector, but you know what I mean. These are the kinds of sectors which are hugely important to the UK economy, logistics or food processing, private sector, and where unionism, unionization rather, has been unheard of. However, I think in Amazon, it's important to say, while they aren't unionized workplaces, the GMB is active in there. And there's clearly long-term, and I hope, successful efforts to unionize those workplaces. I think you saw the first unionized workplace recently in Amazon and in the US. You saw allegations of collusion between state authorities, the police, and Amazon management to stop that from happening. I mean, it would be pretty remarkable if something similar happened in this country. Uh, Maybe we'll see something like the deal that we got between the GMB and Uber quite controversial, where the GMB union represents Uber workers, but they don't engage in wage bargaining. You'd say, well, what's the point of a union that doesn't engage in wage bargaining? That would be a sticking plaster, I think. A 35p pay rise when you're looking at 13 15% inflation this year. By the way, we've not said this enough, Michael. The Bank of England is saying for the end of next year, or Q3, third quarter, so this time next year, they're still expecting inflation of 9.5%. It's only in uh, 2024. It magically falls back to 2%. Our target, magically. We don't know how. And of course, that all depends on the conflict between Russia and Ukraine or China, you know, trying to have a trade war with the world's largest exporter. That will probably push up inflation. I'm not a genius. You know, I don't run the Bank of England like Mr. Bailey, but I, I have my suspicions. So it tells you about the extent and the intensity of the problem that workers in logistics, food preparation are doing that. 35p is a real is a real slap in the face. I mean, you're getting, in real terms, you're getting effectively 10% poor in the space of one year. And I think for our audience, again, to sort of really impress this on our audience, what, what is happening with inflation. If we have, say, inflation over the next two years of, of 10% per annum, which is broadly now what seems to be the BOE predictions, which, by the way, may be conservative. If you have £100, if you have £100 at the start of 22, that £100 is it's worth 20% less at the start of 2024. That's a lot. 
let's say uh, your, your mum or dad dies and they leave you some money and you've got 30 grand in the bank and you're like, oh, wow, I'm never going to have this much money ever again. Uh, it's not enough to put a deposit down on somewhere. That's losing 20% in value. Of course, there's a little bit of interest from the interest rates, but not much. That's losing 20, or if you just keep it under your mattress, 20% in two years. That's really, really, really remarkable. And to go back to what you were saying earlier on, Michael, increasing prices for food, increasing prices for energy, increasing prices for labor, increasing prices of capital because of the increase in interest rates. What does that mean? It means that people remortgaging have to pay more. If you're a landlord remortgaging, it means that you push that onto your tenants. So renters are going to have to pay for that increase in interest rates too. So rising energy, rising housing costs. If you're a business, rising labor costs. If you're a business, rising corporation tax costs, though, of course, we're perfectly happy for that. Rising national insurance contributions. It's a real, real mess. And what makes it so interesting and unique is that, yes, you've got workers in these ununionized workplaces like Amazon who realize the scale of that and think, we are not putting up with this. But that goes quite a long way up, you know, to people on, say, 40, 50 grand in the public sector, small businesses who are really struggling. There are so many small businesses, Michael. They came through COVID and now they're being hammered by high energy prices. Hammered, 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 hammered. We've seen it in the last week. Two local bus companies, I think one in Yorkshire somewhere, one in, in Bournemouth, where I'm originally from, Yellow Buses, they've gone out of business because of passenger numbers being lower than they were pre-COVID. And of course, their energy costs are up. And in the case of Yellow Buses, I think you're looking at about 300 drivers out of work. So, so many different demographics from small business owners to, you know, unionized public sector workers to ununionized private sector workers, all of them are looking at this car crash over the next year to 18 months and thinking, we've got to do something about this. And this is, a, I think, in many ways, the most radical and interesting expression of that. Uh, very articulately laid out all of the massive problems that the British economy and the British people are going to face over the next couple of years. Got some breaking news. List Trust has just sent out a press release. It says, for immediate release, pictures, Liz Trust visits world's biggest union flag. <laughs> that is the press release the Liz Trust campaign has sent out today. That's where their priorities are. If you want to read more on the story we were just talking about, there's the full report up on navaramedia.com. Come, well worth taking a look at that. The link can be found in the description box below. Final story of the evening. Alex Jones is a right-wing American shock jock who uses his InfoWars site and show to broadcast fake news and wild conspiracy theories. You may remember him from bizarre episodes like this. And I'm not saying people didn't naturally have homosexual feelings. I'm not even getting into it, quite frankly. I mean, give me a break. You think I am like, oh, shocked by it, so I'm up here bashing it because I don't like gay people. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny. That's a fairly stupid conspiracy theory that the US government is deliberately turning American frogs gay. But some of his output is a lot darker. On the 14th of December 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza entered Sandy Hook Elementary School. He was armed with a semi-automatic rifle and 10 rounds of ammunition. Within about five minutes, he shot and killed 26 and 7-year-old children as well as six adult members of the school staff. He then shot himself. These are well-established facts about one of America's most heinous mass shootings. And yet, this is how Jones chose to cover the story over the years. The official story of Sandy Hook has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. My gut tells me the White House, people controlling the governments were involved in this. So don't ever think the globalists that have hijacked this country wouldn't stage something like this. They kill little kids all day, every day. And it's not our government. It's the globalist. I mean, they're doing it. They're doing it. They're staging it. Included in the conspiracy theory he promoted were claims that the parents of the murdered children were paid actors, that the massacre was a false flag operation carried out by gun control advocates, and even that no children had ever been killed. Those traumatized parents were then harassed for years by Jones's followers, with some being forced to move home several times. So Jones is a really, really bad guy, which makes the clip we're about to show you all the more satisfying. It takes place in a Texas courtroom where two of those parents have been suing Jones for defamation. 
For context, Jones had earlier testified under oath that there were no text messages on his phone concerning Sandy Hook. And the video begins after the lawyer for the parents presents him with a printout of a message. I've never seen this text message. I guess you guys got Paul's. My phone didn't save them. So that's probably Your phone didn't save the second I told you guys, I gave it to the, I gave it to the lawyers and said they drain the phone, they can find that stuff. I don't know how gave my it, phone's... You gave it to the lawyers. They were supposed to find it. So that's what, that's what testimony is? No, I searched it as well. I mean, so I, I, you guys have all this stuff and you say we didn't give me anything. Mr. Jones, you know how an iPhone works, right? You've had like contact messages for several years now. Yeah. What does it mean if the messages are in blue? Whose I messages don't... are those? Whose phone is this taken from? I don't know who's going to stay in the room. I mean, I just, I turned the phone over and said, take stuff off. Can I have you look in the very bottom below the very bottom left corner? Is that your phone number? Yes. So you did get my text messages. And it said you didn't. Nice trick. <laughs> yes, Mr. Jones. Oh. Indeed. You didn't give this text message to me. You don't, you don't know where this came from. Do you know where I got this? No. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up. They sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years. And when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have a text message about saying you Did you know that? I See, I told you the truth. This is your Perry Mason moment. I gave them my phone. and then, Mr. Jones, you need to answer the question. No, I, did you know I, this happened? No, I didn't know this happened. But I mean, I told you I gave them the phone. Over. Just, just and you said, you said in your deposition, you searched your phone. You said. You pulled down the text, did the search function for Sandy Hook. That's what you said, Mr. Jones, correct? And I had several several different phones with this number, but I did, yeah. Well, of course, I mean, that's why you got it. No, Mr. Jones, that's not why. My lawyer sent it to you, but I'm hiding it. Okay. Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones, that's... just answer questions. There's no question. Mr. Bankston also only asked questions. Sure. Mr. Jones... In discovery, you were asked, do you have Sandy Hook text messages on your phone? And you said no, correct? You said that under oath. I mean, I was mistaken. I was mistaken, but you, you got the messages right there. You know what perjury is, right? I just want to make sure you know before we go any further. You know what it is. Yes, I do. I mean, I, I'm not a tech guy. I told you I gave, in my testimony, the phone to the lawyers before or whatever, and, and so you got my phone, but we didn't give it to you. No, Mr. Jones, one more time. Please remember, if you need to do a certain fifth amendment, you can. I need to know you can do that. But you testified under oath previously that you personally searched your phone for the phrase Sandy Hook, and there were no messages. You said that under oath. That reveal... Alex Jones, your lawyer sent me the full copy of everything that was on your entire phone and I have seen all of your messages. And the lawyer then didn't tell Alex Jones, presumably because he was a bit embarrassed about it. So Alex Jones finds out live on court TV, whatever this streams on in the United States. But anyone, anyway, now, now millions and millions and millions of people have seen it. Ultimately, Alex Jones had to pay $4.1 million dollars in damages. Um, so this hasn't gone very well for him. Aaron, have you ever seen anything like that clip before? No, it's surreal also because his lawyer's not objecting or trying to wreck anything or it's really, really strange. I mean, you know, anybody who watched the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, at any point, if somebody on the stand is being skewered, obviously the other, the other uh, legal representative tries to obstruct it a little bit. That's part of the job. And I, I don't know why that didn't happen here. Maybe somebody who's watching this, who's more au fait with the, the proceedings over the recent sort of weeks and months can give me an answer. But it's very strange. I, I presume his lawyer was just sort of like cringing, covering their face, saying, oh, God, it wasn't me. Can you imagine how much shit that person now has on their person? 
from the Alex Jones phone. Can you imagine the conversations he had with people, the text messages, the emails, the WhatsApps, the telegrams, the signals, whatever, you know, because he's had obviously the divorce with his wife. He was interviewed by Joe Rogan. You know, he, it was only in 2016 that he, um, he interviewed Donald Trump on Infowars. The stuff on there must be extraordinary. Now, of course, it has to be relevant if he's disclosing in a court of law, but my God, I would, I would be very surprised if journalists, individuals haven't got in touch with that lawyer saying, look, is there anything you can give me in this phone, which is at least a lead to a big story? Cause I bet there's several dozen. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. But just to finish, Michael, the thing about the frogs, it's sort of true. Atrazine. It was a, God. it was a UC Berkeley study. It's sort of true. It's not, not, didn't make the frogs gay. There's a pesticide. It's not a government program. It's a pesticide. Pesticides have all sorts of bad consequences. Yes. You know, he, he, I don't think Alex Jones is kind of like a eco-anarchist or an eco-socialist. Atrazine, which is a very common pesticide, can effectively turn male frogs into female frogs from what we can mm. see. They start to produce estrogen. They can start to lay eggs. They start to mate with other males. So it doesn't make the frogs gay. It turns them effectively into female frogs. Uh, but it's not a government program. It's not intentional. Pesticides do lots of bad things. I mean, we've known that since Rachel Carson and, you know, the mid 1950s. But, you know, as with so much of what Alex Jones says, there's 5% truth in every one in 10 of his stories. And so people go, actually, no, he's right about this. But yeah, the Sandy Hook stuff, absolutely despicable, the lowest of the low. And it is amazing just to see he's just falling apart really in the last several years. You know, Michael, he's not even 50 yet. You know that? I mean, it's not, I know we've got viewers and they say, well, it's not nice when people comment on other people's appearances, but he was quite a good looking guy when he was younger. And, and you can just see that his anger and his hatred and his disposition to the world, it's really showing on him a secondary point, but he's really falls from grace. Because like I said, it was only six years ago, he was interviewing, you know, the president-elect. I mean, I suppose if he was angry at the world, then his lawyer sending the entire contents of his phone to the opposing lawyer probably won't make him any less angry. Aaron, it's been a pleasure as always being joined by you on a Friday night. My pleasure, Michael. My pleasure. Some real gotcha videos today. We've got the Alex Jones. We've got Rishi Sunak. We've got Keir Starmer. This is Michael Walker in his element. This is like <laughs> Zinedine Zidane, the 1998 World Cup final. I loved being a part of it. Keep coming. We need more bad people to get embarrassed. We'll be back on Monday. Have a fantastic weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.